read these words in the 34th Psalm. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Well, let us heed the words of the psalmist and exalt God's name together in the words of the 103rd Psalm. In Sing Psalms, we sing verses 1 through 11. Do you stand or sit? Praise God, my.
Let us pray together. Our God and our Father, we draw near to you in the name of your Son, our only hope and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We come acknowledging that outside of him we are without hope and without God, but that united to him by your grace and love and through the gospel, we can come to you as your children, sons and daughters of the living God. We can come to you even with confidence and boldness because we come in that name that you have exalted over every other name, the name of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. We come to extol you in our praise, to confess you to be the living and true God that you are, to bow before you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to confess that you are not only the true and living God, but that you are our God through Jesus Christ. We praise you that you are the sovereign King of the heavens and the earth. You were exalted above the confusions and the chaos and the miseries and the absurdities of this world. You reign, Lord, in perfect splendor. And you do all things well. Your sovereignty is an undiminished sovereignty. But it is a gracious sovereignty. And one day we shall no longer see through a glass darkly but face to face, and then, Lord, we will know, even as also we are known. We thank you that you have promised to draw near to those who draw near to you. You have promised, Lord, not to treat us as our sins have deserved, but to deal with us in tender mercy and in covenant love and kindness. We come, Lord, burdened, perhaps even broken. We come conscious of many, many sins. Sins that shame us and that grieve you and dishonour you. We do what we should never do and we leave undone what we should do. We think unholy thoughts. We are not even what we want to be. We understand only too well the words of your servant Paul, the good that I would I do not, the evil that I would not that I do. O wretched man that I am. But then, Lord, we remember your words, that you are rich in mercy, that you are slow to anger, that you abound in steadfast love. And so we come, Lord, seeking afresh the cleansing of the precious blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. That atonement that was made once for all, never to be repeated, because perfectly offered on Calvary's cross. We thank you that our sins, not in part but the whole, have been nailed to his cross, and you remember them no more. Indeed, Lord, you have put them forever behind your back, You have buried them in the sea of your forgetfulness. And we bless you that we can come to you now knowing that in Christ we are forgiven and loved and cherished. That we are a people whom you rejoice over and even sing over. We ask you, Lord, to meet us in our need today. Lift up our hearts, Lord. Lift up our eyes beyond ourselves. Remind us afresh of our exalted King, the Lord Jesus Christ. So our God, we look to you. Look upon us in tender mercy. And we ask all our prayers through Jesus Christ, our risen, reigning and returning King. Amen. Well, I was told I could somewhat rejig the order of service, so I've done that. So we're going to read in Paul's letter to the Romans, 
And boys and girls want you to listen very, very carefully to the first two verses of the passage because we'll be thinking about that with you for a few moments. <clears throat> Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, reading from the sixth chapter, verse 1. Let me set the context for you. Paul is writing to a church that he's hoping to visit. He tells us in chapter 15 that he's hoping that the church in Rome will become a second Antioch. Remember Paul and Barnabas were sent out on their first missionary journey in Acts 13. And now Paul is expecting, in the will of God, to go to Spain. And he's looking to the church in Rome to be a launching pad, a missionary launching pad for his gospel visit as he hoped which was never realised to go to Spain and because he's never been to the church in Rome uh, he does something that you might expect him to do he says to them let me explain to you the gospel that I preach everywhere I go I want you to understand as best as I am able the riches of the gospel of God in Jesus Christ and that's what he's been doing up to this point. In fact, there isn't one command in the first five and a half chapters. There's not one imperative verb. It's all, look what God has done. Not, this is what you have to do. You'll come to that. <clears throat> but he wants them to understand <clears throat> excuse me, the riches of what God has done in Jesus Christ to rescue us from our lostness and sin and rebellion and reconcile and restore us to God and give us a living hope. And so he writes in chapter 6 verse 1 What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him, or perhaps better, if we have been planted together with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be destroyed. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also. And this is the first command in the first five and a half chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> now you're very far away but there are some of you I can see dotted here and there when I was a little boy at school in the east end of Glasgow some of my friends got up to mischief I won't tell you the kind of mischiefs they got up to that wouldn't be good for us to hear this morning but they would go up to mischief and they would do things that they shouldn't do. They would say things they shouldn't say. And they would say to me, Ian, come on, let's do this. 
And uh, I would almost always say, no, I'm not doing that. Or they might say, Ian, let's say that this happened. We need to tell a lie so that we don't get the belt from the teacher. In those good old days when teachers had belts. And I would say, "Mm, no, I'm not going to do that. Now maybe you're thinking, oh, what a good Christian boy Ian Hamilton must have been. I was never in church. My parents were never in church. I didn't possess a Bible. Didn't know anything in the Bible. So, why did I not almost always do what the other boys around me were doing that wasn't right? And why wouldn't I say things that weren't nice? Not because I was a goody-goody or better than anyone, but this was the reason why. Every time I was asked or encouraged to do something that wasn't good or say something that wasn't kind, I would hear my mother's voice. I loved my mother. She was so good to me. And I would hear her voice saying, Ian, be good. Ian, be kind. Ian, work hard at school. Ian, don't be cheeky to your teachers. It was because I loved my mum that God in his mercy, I didn't know anything about God, but God in his mercy kept me from things that weren't good or right. So the question I want to ask you this morning, and we'll be looking at this more uh, in detail later, is why do you do things that are good? And why do you not do things that are wrong? Well, maybe you're thinking, well, that's, that's very easy. God says in his word, God commands us to do good things, and he does. And he commands us not to do bad things. And he does. And that would be a good answer, wouldn't it? The Bible says. The Bible says. Inside you might be thinking, I would love to do that. But the Bible says, you shall not. Or I would love to get up to this mischief, but oh my, the Bible says... You must not. But maybe you're thinking, well, Ian, that's true. But there's another reason why I don't do things that are wrong and try always to do things that are right. Yes, the Bible tells me, and and that's important, that's vital. But God, who gave his only Son to save me from a lost eternity, rescue me from hell and bring me to heaven, I want to please him. It's because I love him who first loved me that I don't want to lie and cheat and swear and get up to mischief. I know the Bible tells me that, and and that's important. We need to know God's word, but God looks to our hearts. He wants to know why we're keeping his commandments. Not just that we keep them. God looks in the heart. And so when people said to Paul, Paul, this gospel of Jesus Christ, this good news of Jesus Christ, wonderful. God forgives all our sins. This this is great. We'll just continue to sin and give God the happy opportunity to go on forgiving us. Now Paul could have said this. Don't you know the Bible? Don't you know the Bible? But he doesn't. He says, Megenoito. You know what that means? Emanuani, Greek here? What does the authorised version say? Anyone tell me? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? KJV says, 
God forbid. It's not a great translation, but it's a great theological statement. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying, you're asking me, who has been washed clean in the blood of Jesus, who has a hope of heaven, who has God now as my Father, you're asking me to do something that he dislikes? So later we're going to be thinking about how Paul answers that question. Shall we go on sinning and give God the happy opportunity to forgive us? Meganoito, God forbid, by no means. God looks on the heart. I hope you can remember that. And if you're with us at all in the rest of the service, we'll be thinking more about that. We're going to sing in the Scottish Psalter the words of the 67th Psalm. God bless and pity us, shine on us with thy face. command us to bring to you the needs of this world and its lostness and so our God we begin first by praying that you in wrath will remember mercy to the nations of this world that you will remember in your mercy Lord the many thousands of people groups who have never heard of Jesus Christ who have no written language no Bible no message of a saviour and we pray Lord that in these dark times in which we live that you will raise up men and women to go to the ends of the earth as you have called and commanded us to do with the good news of your son 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless every faithful, godly gospel endeavor that seeks to bring hope and salvation to men and women and boys and girls sunk in darkness and in utter ignorance. Lord, in wrath remember mercy. And have mercy upon the nations, Lord, in their follies and absurdities today. We live in a time where evil is called good and good is called evil. We live in days when evil is paraded as being winsome and wholesome when it is corrupt and godless and vile. We have sown to the wind and we reap the whirlwind. Indeed, Lord, we are living in the days of your judgment. You have given us up to these unholy, ungodly ways and desires. But you are rich in mercy. You take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they should turn to you and live. And so we pray, O God, not least for our own nation, that you will, by your Holy Spirit and by the truth of your word, pierce the darkness, the ignorance, the vileness with the wholesome, life-giving truth of Jesus Christ. We pray, O God, for children, not least our own, who are being raised in days of absurdity, that you will guard their minds and hearts and that the good news of a Saviour might guard and armour their hearts and minds against the wiles of the devil. We pray that you would have mercy, O God, upon our rulers. We pray for our Queen, for those who govern us from Westminster and from Holyrood. And once again, Lord, we ask that in wrath you will remember mercy. Our leaders provoke you by their ungodliness. They provoke you, Lord, by their willfulness. They provoke you by publicly trampling upon your truth. And we pray, Lord, that you will raise up godly leaders in our nation. We pray, Father, for Christians who seek faithfully in Westminster and Holyrood to honour you. We pray that you would give them the faithfulness, the unyielding faithfulness to do so. And we pray for ourselves, Lord, as a congregation, as individuals and families, that you will look on us in tender mercy. Remember the minister of this congregation and family as they sorrow the death of a loved one. Lord, there are times when your ways are past finding out to us. And all we can do is, like your servant Job, put our hands to our mouths and say, It is the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Minister your comfort, Lord, to those who sorrow. Minister help and comfort to those who are perplexed. Minister your grace, Lord, to those who are rejoicing that they may trace all their blessings back to you. So, Lord, we come and we pray that your word will speak into our lives. That your truth, Lord, will not simply lie dormant in our minds, but captivate the citadel of our hearts. That we would love you better who first loved us. Help us, Holy Spirit. Give light and understanding, Lord, we pray. And we ask it in our Saviour's name. Amen. Well, before we turn to God's word, we sing the words of the 130th Psalm and sing Psalms, Lord, from the depths, I call to you, Lord, hear me from on high. Lord. 
to sin live any longer in it the gospel the good news the glad tidings of God in Jesus Christ is a puzzle to the world it's a puzzle to many because they hear the words of the good news And they think those words incredible, unbelievable, unthinkable, unimaginable. The eternal God becoming flesh in a virgin's womb. Living a perfect sinless life in order to die a sin atoning death on Calvary's cross. And then to rise in triumph on the third day and then to ascend through the heavens to the glory from which he had come they hear this and they think this is beyond all credibility and there are others who hear the glad tidings and they misunderstand it completely They hear the good news that through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, God fully, freely and forever pardons our sins, reconciles us to himself and makes us heirs together with Jesus Christ of the glory of God. 
They hear that and they say, wonderful, wonderful. This means we can go on sinning so that God may have the opportunity to go on forgiving. At the end of chapter 5, Paul has, has written, As sin reigned in death, grace also reigns through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. People heard that <clears throat> and they were drawing this conclusion. If God is so full of grace, so full of undeserved kindness and mercy, well, let's give him all the opportunities that we can for him to exercise his loving kindness and grace and mercy. Let us go on sinning, chapter 6, verse 1, so that grace may abound. They are drawing a false conclusion from all that Paul has been teaching. Now Paul has been teaching, if you know Paul's letter to the Romans at all, you'll know that from uh, chapter 3 verse 21 to the end of chapter 4 verse 25, Paul has been showing us that what we could never do to make ourselves right with God, God has done in his Son Jesus Christ for us on our behalf. He has lived the perfect life we could never live. And he has died the sin-atoning death we could never die. And he does it as our covenant head, as our representative. What he does, we all do because of our union with him. His life is our life. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. And because we have entrusted ourselves to Jesus Christ, all that is his becomes ours. Remember how Paul puts it at the beginning of his letter to the Ephesians. In Christ, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. But when Paul preached that gospel... People heard him saying this. Grace is so wonderful. So out of this world. That no matter what we do. God is there to forgive. So let's do all that we can do. And give God the opportunity to forgive. They were hearing Paul preach. I'll use the word and explain it, antinomianism, against the law. He doesn't mention the law. What place does the law have in making us right with God? Well, Paul says it has no place in making us right with God. The law condemns us, humbles us. That's why Jesus Christ needed to come. But they were hearing Paul say, it doesn't matter how you live, God will always be there to pick up the pieces and forgive. Now Paul wasn't the first person to have his preaching misunderstood, was he? The Lord Jesus Christ himself, at the very outset of his public ministry, Matthew 5, is constrained to say, do you remember Matthew 5:17? Do not think that I have come to destroy the law and the prophets. Now why does he say that? Why does he need to say that? Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, God's holy law. Because as he preached the good news of the gospel of God, the kingdom of God, people were hearing him say, the law... Keeping the law doesn't make you right with God. And so Jesus has to say, now, now, don't misunderstand me. Do not think 
that I'm abolishing the law. I'm bringing the law into its proper place. The law convicts us. It convinces us of our need of a saviour. But it can't be itself our saviour. And when we come to Jesus Christ. We then discover. That God has given us a heart. To keep his commandments. Now that's the background. To what Paul writes here at the beginning of Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we. We Christian believers. We who have been united to Christ. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. It is out of the question. God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live in it? There are two things I want you to notice with me this morning. The first very briefly... And the second a little more extensively. First of all, Paul responds theologically. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Do you not know that we died to sin? We died to sin. Now when someone dies, life no longer has any claim on them. And Paul is saying to these people who are misunderstanding his proclamation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, you need to understand the theology of the gospel. We died to sin in the death of Jesus Christ. Sin no longer has dominion over us. If we had time, we could unpack the following verses. If you look at verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Sin remains to trouble us, yes, but it no longer has dominion, authority, or power over us. We died to sin. Paul is saying, you need to understand what God accomplished on Calvary's cross. We died to sin. How can we go on living in it? He's not saying that Christians don't sin. But he is saying it's no longer the pattern of their lives. It's no longer what shapes and determines how they think. And what they say and what they do and where they go. We died to the power and the authority of sin. At the Reformation in the 16th century, the Roman Church responded to the Protestant reformers, mainly Luther and Calvin, Heinrich Bullinger. You Protestants are teaching a doctrine that's a recipe for moral chaos and disaster why did they say that well because the protestants were saying God justifies the ungodly not through any works they do but through the work of Jesus Christ alone God makes us right with himself through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone and so the Roman church responded if our works contribute nothing to our standing before God well what's to stop us just living any which way we please and I hope you know how the reformers responded we're increasingly losing touch with our history and heritage in the reformed churches today we need to know these middle decades of the 16th century. How did they respond? They responded, Calvin in particular, with this statement. Duplex gratia. Duplex gratia. Now that's a Latin. I'm going to explain it. Don't switch off. Think foreign languages. Double grace. Double grace. What did they mean by that? They meant that when... Through faith in Christ you become united to Christ. 
you become united not only to a justifying saviour but to a sanctifying saviour to a whole Christ you don't get Christ in parcels when you believe the gospel you get Christ in his totality and he is a holy Christ he is a Christ whose life was sinless and perfect and that's the life we're united to and Paul is saying we died to sin in our union with Jesus Christ when we receive Jesus Christ we don't receive him as saviour and then a few months, weeks, years later receive him as lord as some silly Christians used to teach he's not a two-faced saviour you receive Christ in all his fullness and the rest of the Christian life in this world and in the world to come is an endless exploration of the length, the breadth, the height and the depth of the riches that God has given to us in his son Jesus Christ. And so Paul responds here theologically. He's saying you need to understand the gospel. Why can't we live like that? Because We've been united to Jesus Christ. To go on sinning, to make sin the pattern of our lives as it once was, would be to say we have never been saved, never been born again, never been converted. By their fruit you will know them, said Jesus. So he responds theologically. But secondly, and it's this I want really to focus on with you this morning, because this is... Um, gripped my mind somewhat in the last two or three weeks he responds emotionally what shall we say then are, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means now he could have said what shall we say then are we to continue, continue in sin that grace may abound do you not know that all of us who died with Christ, have died to sin he could have said that, he could have given the theological answer first but he uses this phrase by no means he gives a powerful emotional response how can I not go on sinning God forbid God forbid Now the point I want to make with you this morning is simply this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a theological theorem. It's not a cold set of brute facts. It's not like a set of mathematical concepts that we acknowledge as true. Memorize the first 107 question and answers of the shorter catechism and you're bound to be a Christian. No you're not. You might know the 107 question and answers. I hope some of you do. hope you're teaching the young people to do that. But you can know all of that in your head and yet never have encountered the saving, transforming, loving kindness of God in Jesus Christ in the gospel. Earlier in chapter 1, Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Literally, it's the dunamis, the dynamite of God. The gospel is a power. We don't need to make the gospel relevant today. The gospel is relevant. It addresses men and women and boys and girls where they are. God doesn't change. We need to engage people where they are. Absolutely. We need to understand where people are, like the men of Issachar who understood the times. We, we need to be aware of the, the complexities and the, the philosophies and the absurdities that are scarring uh, the country we live in and the world we live in. But we need to remember that the gospel itself is natively relevant. It is the power of God for salvation. And what Paul is saying is this. Let me unpack by no means. He's saying, the gospel of Jesus Christ has rescued me from the kingdom of Satan and brought me into the kingdom of God. 
It has brought me into living contact with the love of God. A love that has come to me, a judgment-deserving sinner in Jesus Christ. The gospel is a message about the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. The gospel is a message that has shone hope and glory into the darkness and death of my life. Are you telling me I should continue then to sin? Seeing what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. There is a wellspring of emotion pouring out of the Apostle Paul. Now he could say, now you don't understand the Bible. Do you not know the Ten Commandments? Well I hope you do. Do you know one time in Scotland you couldn't get married unless you knew the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer? It's very very sobering. I think we all could probably get the Lord's Prayer. I'm not sure many of us would know the whole Exodus 20 of the Ten Commandments. And as for the Apostles' Creed, which the Westminster Confession say should be recited in Christian churches. Anyway, that's by the way. The point is that the Gospel has come and done something glorious internally to Paul. That the very thought that he should grieve this God, dishonour this God, live counter to the will and purpose of this God. Now Paul has said earlier at the end of chapter 3, do we overthrow the law by this gospel? God forbid. Same language, by no means. The law comes into its proper place. If someone says... You know, when, when children are growing up, Neil's children are growing up, and, and they, they go to school and they say, what, what are you doing this Sunday? You want to come and do whatever? And you say, oh, no, we go to church. Oh, we go to church. Why do you go to church? Well, my dad says we should go. And that's a good answer. But as a father, you're waiting for the day. You're waiting for the day when someone says to them, you're going to church twice, twice on a Sunday? Why do you do that? I want to praise and honour the God who loves me, who spared not his only son for me and delivered him up for me to Calvary's cross. Oh, and by the way, my dad says we should do it too. You see, for Paul to go on sinning as if nothing had changed would be to have poured contempt on the love of God and the sacrifice of his son. This language, by no means, God forbid, you almost can taste the emotiveness of the language. It's Bible language, it's affectional language. Because the Christian life is deeply affectional. My son, give me your heart. Now, I want myself, I want all Christians to be deeply, profoundly theological. Would that we all really knew our Westminster standards and Calvin's Institutes and the works of John Owen and John Murray. John Murray, rarely read in seminaries, but profound, wonderful biblical theology. I want our minds to be saturated in truth, but God wants that truth to permeate our hearts. The gospel is not a cold, clinical, forensic transaction. Now the gospel is forensic. Justification is a forensic word. God justifies the ungodly. But justification makes us right with God, brings us into union with Christ, and affects everything about us. If anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, you know the rest of it? new creation interestingly the Greek is not he is a new creation which is true if anyone is in Christ new creation the verb isn't there Paul is saying you come into a new world when you become a Christian you breathe new air 
you discover, perhaps to your astonishment at first, a growing taste for things you had no desire for and a growing distaste for things you once ran after. Let me illustrate it as we draw to a close from Joseph's response to Potiphar's wife's attempt to seduce him in Genesis 39. Joseph's been abandoned by his family. Uh, He's become a slave in Egypt. You know the story well. Things begin to look up for Joseph and he he gains a position of some uh, influence in the household of Potiphar. Life has been hard for Joseph. For perhaps 20 years, he's been abandoned. And Potiphar's wife seeks to seduce him. Now, it doesn't take much imagination to think of the little voices that would be saying to Joseph, grab some life while you can. God's abandoned you. Your family have abandoned you. You're in a foreign land. Anyway, Who knows? And Joseph makes one of the most remarkable statements in the whole Bible, I think. He says, how could I do such a thing and sin against God? For 20 years, God's been nowhere. So it would seem. And yet Joseph says to this woman, how could I child of the covenant that I am blessed with the God of heaven as my God how could I do such a thing and sin against God now he could have said couldn't he he could have said the commandment says you shall not commit adultery now you're thinking ah Ian you've got it all wrong Uh, Joseph's before Exodus 20 indeed indeed I did actually know that But Romans 2, God wrote his commandments on Adam's heart. God's law was already embedded in the heart before it was written in tablets of stone, wasn't it? He could have said, the creator, Yahweh, the covenant king says, no, no, no. And that would have been good, but he does something more affectional, more emotive. How could I do such a thing? and sin against God let me close by reminding you of a sermon that Thomas Chalmers preached you know Thomas Chalmers presume you do first moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland Free that was the original name not the Free Church of Scotland deliberately Church of Scotland Free 1843 May Tanfield Hall Edinburgh he preached perhaps the greatest sermon of the 19th century with this title The Expulsive Power of a New Affection He's seeking to respond to what he reads in 1 John 2 verse 15 Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him I have a lengthy quote from Chalmers, but we'll forget that. Chalmers is asking the question, how, how, how can Christians resist loving the world? He says the first answer people give is this, show them the vanity and the emptiness of the world. And the Bible does that in places, doesn't it? This world is passing away. But Chalmers says, that won't do. That'll do for a season, but that won't do. Simply showing someone the negative does not cause them to embrace the positive, the expulsive power of a new affection. So, yes, perhaps there's a place for saying to young people, old people, this world that so enamors you, it's passing away, it's heading for oblivion, it's heading for hell. But, says Chalmers, the best way not to love the world 
is by showing the beauty and the attraction of another object God so preach God Father, Son and Spirit so preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified that people will be attracted to the beauty of the gospel as well as the truth of the gospel by the beauty of the Saviour by the incomparableness of the glory of God that's why the first question and answer of the Shorter Catechism is so brilliant what is the chief end of man? to glorify God and enjoy him God is to be enjoyed yes we're to fear him with a holy fear and but not with a fear that cringes, but with a fear that runs to him. He's to be enjoyed. Because he's great and glorious and good. And so Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The way to help our young people cope with this absurd Alice in Wonderland world in which we live is to preach Christ to them two applications from that just in a sentence this truth should deeply affect how the gospel is preached people need to feel the truth of the gospel not just hear it Truth is visceral. Truth is not only to capture the mind, it's to captivate the heart. The gospel should never be preached coldly, analytically. God save us from that. It should affect how the gospel is preached. And secondly, this truth searches our hearts and lays them bare. So I close with the question that I really asked the children why do you do what you do and why do you not do what you don't do I'm really asking have you experienced the expulsive power of a new affection let us pray Our God and Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit will impact our lives with the truth of the gospel. That we would understand more and more that Jesus Christ himself is the gospel. He is the good news. He is our justifying righteousness. We ask, Lord, that our hearts will more and more love him who first loved us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) Our closing (coughs) song of praise is the words of the 27th Psalm and sing psalms. We sing verses 1 through 4. The Lord's my Saviour and my light.
congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, lift up your heads and receive by faith the blessing of the triune God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you, give you his peace.